Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 8. Only 8 verses, but there's a lot of stuff in these 8 verses, so I'm going to have to limit this audio to 8 verses. Our context is this, in chapter 11, Paul has talked about the remnant of Israel coming to the kingdom. He's talked about the Gentiles being grafted in to that cultivated olive tree, which is the kingdom of God. And now in chapter 12, he's going to go to some more practical stuff about how to operate in church life, individual sanctification type things. And so now we turn to chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Now, of course, this verse is oft quoted amongst Christians. Let's take it verse by verse. First of all, the therefore. He's referring back to what Paul has said in the previous chapters, 1 through 11. Here's some examples of what he said. God has been merciful. He's shown us grace. He's not treated us as our sins deserve. He's paid for our sins. He's given us righteousness. He's told us how to deal with sin. He's told us how to deal with the law, which creates sin. He's told us how to live a new spirit-controlled life with the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He's done all that stuff. And so now he switches from doctrine to practice. As John Gill says, he's told us all all that doctrinal stuff, and now he's going to say, therefore, let's put it into practice. Brothers, by the mercies of God, that's a good word there. Mercies, it means compassion of of God, by the compassion of God, or by the pity of God. Much of chapters 1 through 11 has dealt with God's grace, especially chapters 9 and chapters 11. Chapters 11, I just mentioned, talked about the remnant coming in and and the Gentiles coming in, all because of God's grace. And, of course, justification by faith, which is by grace alone. All that stuff he's talked about in previous chapters, and so by the mercies of God, by the grace of God, Because of what God has done for you, that's how I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, present shows this. God wants us to present our bodies because a proper appreciation of God's grace will lead to the desire to do good works. Well, God's already shown us mercies, and so now as a result of that grace that he's given us, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice so that you can do good works. Even though God's grace is absolutely unconditioned to put our good works, our good works are a natural corollary, a natural follow-on to the grace that we've received. We want to do good works because we have received such grace. So grace does not lead to antinomian license. It leads to righteousness. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The body is a figure of speech for one's whole person, of course, because When Paul says present your bodies, he also means present your mind, present your will, present your emotions, present your immaterial part of yourself, your incorporeal part of yourself, as well as the corporeal part of yourself. Present your whole life, everything you've got. Give it to God. Paul uses that metaphor a lot. For example, in Romans 6.13, do not offer any parts of it, referring to one's body, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, he says, Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Therefore, glorify God in your body. This, of course, cuts against all notions of Gnosticism. The body was created good. It was not created evil, as the Gnostics and so many legalists and ascetics often say. We're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, let's take sacrifice first. Like an animal on the altar, you were to be consumed by the fire of God. You are to be vaporized into smoke so you can ascend unto him. If we can carry the analogy a little a little ways. Now notice that the word is singular. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It sounds like the sacrifice is a one-off thing. So there, it shows that there's a corporate aspect to our worship and service to God. We're all in it together and we offer our bodies as a single sacrifice, as Steve Ackerson points out. Now that corporate aspect is not noticed so much. We often, th- in fact... I think this way all the time. We're thinking about individual sacrifices that we lay on the altar. And, of course, that's true. But here, Paul is talking to a whole group of Romans, and he says, give God one sacrifice. So all the bodies go together in one sacrifice. Now, this sacrifice is to be a living sacrifice. This is in opposition to dead animals, which are sacrificed in the Old Testament. As according to NIV Study Bible, Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, that's the point that Paul is making here. A li- he has to qualify a sacrifice with a living sacrifice because, obviously, Christians aren't killed when they sacrifice themselves metaphorically on God's altar. They're alive as opposed to those dead animals. 
And a living sacrifice refers to the fact that Christians, when they sacrifice themselves to God, have a new life in the Holy Spirit, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Here's some scriptures about life, life for the Christian. John 10.10, a thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Romans 1.17, for in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You believe in God, you're going to live. Romans 6.11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You get sin out of your life, pay no attention to it, treat it like a dead man would treat it, become dead to sin, and what happens? You're alive to God, and you can respond to God. Romans 6.13, and do not offer any parts of it as sin, as weapons for unrighteousness, any parts of your body, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God. That's the same idea, living sacrifice, you're alive from the dead. Offer all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, a weapon your body is a weapon to do good. Romans 8:13 for if you live excuse me if you live according to the flesh you're going to die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Galatians 2:20. And I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see there's nothing but life in Jesus. Everywhere it's through the scripture. Life, 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 and life more abundantly, I might add. Now, this sacrifice we're to make is, Paul says in verse 1 of Romans 12, this is our spiritual worship. Now we get into some translation issues because spiritual can also be translated reasonable. The Greek word is not pneumatikos, which is spiritual, but the Greek word is logikos, which can mean reasonable as well as spiritual. Some translations go one way, some the other. The NIV margin has reasonable. The KJV has reasonable. The version I'm using here, which is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, says spiritual. So it can go either way, because it's the same idea in, in, in the word there, logikos. And what the idea is, is that when it's a reasonable service, when you use your mind involved in it, it's not mere ritual. Because when you do something ritualistically, you're doing it mindlessly. You never think about what you're doing. You're just going through the genuflections and the rings and the bells and the smells, and you don't think about what you're doing. But the service that we offer to God involves heart, mind, and will. You will to serve God. You think about what you're doing when you serve God, and you use all your affections, emotions, and volition when you decide to serve God. Now, here's some idea about how easy it is for sacrifices to become ritualistic and how God doesn't like it. Isaiah 1, 11 through 17, this is in the Old Testament. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. I mean, this is amazing because, you know, God set up all these things that Isaiah is dumping on. God set them up, but the people just going through the motions. They don't love God with their hearts. They're just serving God with hypocritical outward actions. Isaiah continues, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now there's some, that's reasonable service, folks. Isaiah tells us what reasonable service is, a reasonable worship. Hosea 6, 6, for I desire loyalty and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, of course, that what Isaiah and Hosea are talking about is the mere external offering of sacrifices. They're not against offering sacrifices. Of course, it was required by the law, and God gave them the law. But they're against the mere hypocritical ritualistic offering of sacrifices without a good heart. Psalm 51:17. the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit, a humble spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled spirit. That's the kind of sacrifices we're supposed to offer to God. Now, here's a quote from Steve Ackerson about the word logikos, excuse me, which is used here, the spiritual worship. 
The normal Greek word for spiritual is pneumatikos, but that word is not used here. Instead, the word logikos is found, that's the basis for our word logic, which means agreeable to reason or reasonable, according to Thayer's lexicon. Thus, the KGV renders this as reasonable. The word can indeed mean spiritual, but it can also mean rational. As I said, it's got the idea of both in it. All right, so we have our reasonable or logical or rational, non-ritualistic type of worship. But now worship, that's another, we have another translation problem with worship because there's two Greek words that are translated in English as worship, habitually or customarily. Now, worship is what I've got in the Holman Christian Study Bible. The NIV Study Bible says that that worship means obedient service. So in other words, the idea of service. Now, when we get here just a minute to the Greek words that I'm going to talk about, we'll see that it means service. There's a a big idea of service in it, and we'll talk about that later. But basically, the idea is like in the Old Testament, the priest did service in the temple. So therefore, we, not only are we to be sacrifices on the altar, we're supposed to be part of the services in the temple. Now, worship here does not mean a fuzzy feeling that you get when you go to church. As Steve Atkinson says, it does not mean music and candles, smells and bells. It does not mean all that. What it does mean is a life pleasing to God. Here's a quote from John Murray, the famous Reformed theologian and commentator. Quote, The use of our bodies as sacrifices is characterized by conscience, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. Service. Conscious service. Here's what John Calvin has stated. We will never worship God with a sincere heart till we recognize how much we owe him for his mercy. Well, that's a little off topic, but it's a good quote from Calvin. We do God's service. We serve God, i.e. we worship God. We serve God because he showed us mercy to start with, as I mentioned earlier. Now, let's get into some of the translations a little closer here. The NASB, the New American Standard, translates worship as spiritual service of worship. So they put both ideas in the translation, service and worship. The the chapters in Romans 12 through 16 actually describe service to four different entities, the idea of service of entities. Romans 12, 1 through 2, service to God. Romans 12, 3 through 16, service to other believers. Romans 12, 17 through 21, service to our enemies. And Romans 13 and chapters 14, service to the government. So there's the idea of Christians laying out their lives, doing good things as a result of God's mercy, and that those good things they do is service. And you notice that's a lot different than sticking your hands up in the air and singing a song in a praise service in a church. And again, that's because of the confusion of what that word, the Greek word, means there. The Greek word, by the way, is latruo. Well, the, Greek, the word that's used in this passage is latreon, the accusative feminine, is a feminine accusative noun, service, service of worship. Thayer's definition has the service and worship of God according to the requirements of the Levitical law. And the verb means to perform sacred services. So, the word latreia, the word that's used here in Romans 12.1, is often translated with service in the translation. I looked up several translations. We have the NASB, the KGV, the Amplified, and the Lexham English translation all put service in there. Now, there's another Greek word that is translated as worship in the scriptures. That's proskuneo. Excuse me, proskuneo, proskuneo, and that's also translated as worship. Thayer's defines proskuneo as this. Among the Orientals, especially the Persians, to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. In the New Testament, it's worship by kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or to make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. Another Thayer's definition of proskuneo is used of homage shown to men and beings of superior rank. Worship to the Jewish high priest, worship to God, worship to Christ, worship to angels, to heavenly beings, worship to demons even, worship to Christ, worship to... So when we think of the term worship and service, when you're down on your face before God, you're showing respect, homage, and adoration, well... That word that would be used if you were Greek would be proskuneo. But the word here is latreo, latrea, excuse me, it's a noun, latrea, and it means service. So let's keep those two things separate in our mind. We have a, it's a translation problem. Things get lost in translation. All right, let's pick up a few little details of this verse. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I didn't mention that as I went by, by the mercies of God, that means 
by means of the mercies of God. It indicates that the source of power needed to offer ourselves as a sacrifice is the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. You better rely on God's grace if you're going to present your body to a sacrifice. You think, oh, I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a martyr for the cause. No, you're not. You're going to run at the first sign of gunfire if you don't have the grace of God working with you. This living sacrifice, our bodies, that's supposed to be presented to God is, Paul says, it should be holy. Holy's got a very simple definition, separate from the world and dedicated or consecrated to God. Separate from the world and consecrated to God. That's what we're supposed to be. Pleasing to God. Of course, God loves it when we obey him. God loves obedience. I just got another communication from a dedicated Chinese Christian living in New Zealand. She says, oh, Dan, Dan, I want to tell you the news. I've got a new boyfriend and he's not a Christian. Yeah, well, guess what? God likes obedience, and that ain't obedient to get emotionally hooked up with a non-Christian. That is absolute stupidity. And yet I've had five young Christian Chinese women do that in the last several months. Five, including some that I've led to the Lord. And I'm not happy about it. Well, you know, I'm not pleased by it. Let's put it. God's not pleased when we, do, when we do stuff like that. He's not pleased by disobedience. He's pleased by obedience. And notice that when it says pleasing, it's pleasing to God, it might not be pleasing to us, because a lot of times it's hard to do God's will. We go to verse 2. Paul continues speaking to the Romans. Do not be, and by the way, he's speaking to all the Romans now, Jews as well as Gentiles. He, he splits them out often all the way through the book. Now he's speaking to all of them, Jews as well as Gentiles. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, this conformed, this is the explanation of verse 1. How do, you, how do you make yourself an acceptable sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to God? Well, first of all, you better not be conformed to this age. you got to get married. If you can't find a Christian husband, you better find a non-Christian husband. That's how you be conformed to this age. It means to take the shape of, if my body conforms to my memory foam mattress, it means that mattress has taken the shape of my body. Well, if you want to conform yourself to the world, you take the shape of the world, and you act just like a snowflake millennial. Well, I don't know what gender my baby is. I'm just going to let him grow up and decide when he gets old enough. I expect to make a million dollars by the time I'm 32. That's the world. I don't believe there's any such thing as sexual immorality, except what I say is sexually immoral. Now, I'm giving extreme examples there, but, you know, all of us are conformed to the world in some aspect. I remember I've always despised liberalism of all sorts, and I spent most of all of my, really, most of my vocational life in the academy, which, of course, as you know, is stocked brim full of flaming liberals, the very sort, people who have the very sort of philosophy that I despise with all every molecule of my being. And so I resist it, of course. But I remember thinking one day, you know, I'm thinking like a liberal. I forgot what the issue was, but I remember that horrible recognition. I am thinking like a liberal, and I don't like it. It's because... It's just hard to keep the world out. You start bending. You start conforming to the world. And Paul says, don't do it. How can we not be conformed to the world? It's just hard not to do that. But we've we got to guard against it. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. That's what's like living in the world. You have a lot of desire and you're ignorant. You're wanting the wrong things. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now this is, by the way, is age. Do not be conformed to this age. A lot of translations have world, and that is a bad translation. It really has messed things up in the Olivet Discourse. Tell me the signs of your coming before the end of the world. It sounds like the end of the world. No, it's the end of the age. The, the Greek word is aeon there in the Olivet Discourse and also here in Romans. It's not cosmos, which is world, but it's aeon. A lot of translations put world there, but it's age is the better translation. Some people think that Paul's referring to the Jewish age, according to Adam Clark, as opposed to the gospel age. Do not be conformed to this Jewish age, but be transformed. In other words, quit being a legalist, Jews, but be transformed into freedom that the Gentiles have, not being bound by the law. And that's possible. Uh, however, I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think he's just talking about the world's way of thinking, the world, the flesh, and the devil in general that all Christians have to fight against. I think that's what he's talking about. And if it is to, if, even if he's talking about don't be conformed to the Jewish age, it, we can still make the application to Christians today, even if that's not the interpret, proper interpretation, even if that's not the strict interpretation of what Paul meant. How are we not to be conformed to this age? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, transformed, 
is a process. It's not a single event, as the NIV Study Bible says. So that's your sanctification. Progressive sanctification goes up and down like the stock market, but the overall trend is upwards. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, renewing means to learn to think God's thoughts after him, and one method of doing that is to meditate on Scripture. Praying would help, too. Listening to Christians who have a lot of spiritual knowledge and experience and wisdom, listening to them would be a good idea, too. Lots of ways to renew your mind. Here's a great analogy from the master of analogies, my friend Steve Ackerson. Renewing of your mind is like a steady stream of pure water poured into a bucket of dirty water. Eventually, the dirty water will be replaced. That's like when I wash dishes. That's what I do. I just put the water in there and watch all the grease and garbage go floating out of the pot. goes over the edge and it gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. That's I renewed the water in that pot. And we need to renew our minds. Now, renewing your mind. We all know what a mind is. is what you think. But here, it's thought and well, as well as will, as they relate to morality, as according to the NIV Study Bible. For example, here's Romans 1.28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God as non-believers, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. So when you have a worthless mind doing what is morally wrong, you're thinking about evil thoughts. You're thinking about how I can stab that person in the back. I'm thinking about how that person is not better than me. I'm better than him. I'm thinking about how to be selfish. I'm thinking about how to turn the pages of that Playboy magazine. And on and on and on, you have a worthless mind when you do that. And so when Paul uses the word mind here, it's the idea of what do you think about? Is your mind in the gutter or is it thinking, or has your mind been set on the things above? So you renew your mind so that you don't get up in the morning thinking about how you're going to screw somebody. You get up in the morning thinking about how you're going to praise God and how you're going to serve somebody. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Discern is translated here in the Holman Christian Study Bible. The ESV, English Standard Version, has test. KGV has prove, both meaning the same thing, test to prove, so that you may prove what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Test and prove is a little bit different idea than discern. I don't know what the Greek is, but the idea is that you test it out. In other words, you don't know. You say, God, how about this? How about this? How about this? Get some advice. It's not automatic. But after a while, you learn that sin is not good, not pleasing to God, and righteousness is. It's just a matter of walking it out in your life. You'll learn sooner than later. Discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. When you obey God's will, it pleases Him. As I said earlier, when I talked about the acceptable sacrifice of your body, it's acceptable to God. It pleases Him. And this is the pleasing will of God. Paul mentions in verse 2, Pleasing to God by not be pleasing to you. Oh, you mean I got to love my enemy? Oh, you want me to be a missionary to Timbuktu? Ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. But no, you do what God's will. You end up pleasing yourself as well as God because God loves obedience. He loves to reward obedient students. All right, this idea of discern what the will of God is or test or prove what the will of God is. Here's a language note from Steve Ackerson. Testing is from Dokimadzo which was originally a metallurgy term, meaning to test for purity or genuineness. It thus means to put something to the test to examine for the purpose of recognizing its genuineness, as Thayer says. A renewed mind enables you to test and discern God's will, because there are many imposters. Yes, they are, boy. You want to get on the wrong path, there's a five million ways you can do it. Just get on YouTube and look at all the nonsense that's out there. Now, we want to know, Paul says... Uh, we want to do, I should say, Paul says, the perfect will of God. Well, we want to know. We want to test and discover, discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We want to know what the perfect will of God is. Now, the NIV Study Bible says about this, no improvement can be made on the will of God. That's true. If, if you do everything according to the will of God, man, you've got it made. The problem is, is we don't do everything according to the will of God. We make bad choices, and that creates bad circumstances, and now we have lost the perfect will of God. However... Given those bad circumstances, there is another perfect will of God. Given those circumstances, if you can find it, you will ameliorate the bad effects of what you did. God can start working according to Romans 8:28, working together for good. All those bad things that you brought in your life, and you come out a victorious, conquering Christian. Now, this thing about the perfect will of God, this implies, when you say perfect will of God, it implies that there's one will of God. There's one will of God for this job I need to take. There's one will of God for who I should marry, what church I ought to go to, all these decisions we have to make. But there's one guy, and I wish I could remember his name. It starts with an F. He's got five million copies of his books all over the world. It was originally published by Multnomah Press in Oregon. I cannot remember his name. 
starts with an F, but his last name. But I read the book. It was a fascinating book. He had a theory that that when a Christian is faced with a set of moral options, or not just moral options, but a set of vocational options, what you should do, or moral options, any option is okay with God, of course, as long as it's moral. So should I marry A, B, C, or D? If As long as you're happy with any of them, you choose one, and God will say, okay, that's fine. Well, the interesting thing about that book is I think his thesis is preposterous. I think God knows what he wants you to do, and you're supposed to obey him and do it, but no, no. Well, the interesting thing about that book is that he made such a good case I couldn't answer him, and it's on my theological do list to read that book again and answer him, because I know he's wrong, but I can't answer him. But at any rate, in my humble opinion, when you say the perfect will of God, it sounds like it's not just, oh, I can choose A, B, C, or D, and God will put his stamp of imprimatur on the, on, the, on the option that I've chosen. I told a Calvinist friend of mine who read the book and was very impressed by it, I said, do you realize that's the most Arminian book you ever saw? You, your free will chooses what God's will is. Your free will is jerking God around. But anyway, we go now to verse 3 of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, it takes the grace of God to give advice to other Christians. So that's why he prefaces his little advice. He's going to give them. He says, look, God gave me grace. He gave me mercy. I'm humble to know that this is not me to saying this. This is not my wisdom and intelligence saying this. This is by the grace of God that was given to me. I'm, I'm telling you this. Now, Paul is probably, as Adam Clark says, referring to his apostolic office. For by the grace given to me as an apostle, that's probably what he means, to give himself some authority to start off his exhortations. And he starts off his exhortation kind of strong because he says, I tell everyone among you. Paul speaks very authoritatively here. I remember reading a book by Frank Viola. And what was the name of that book? I forgot the name of it, to be honest with you. He's got it published in two different versions. But he went through the New Testament scriptures and looked at every time the Apostle Paul gave an exhortation or a command to his uh, to his believers. And the overwhelming majority was, I suggest, I urge, I exhort, never I command or I tell. I say, I say never, rarely, I command or I tell. Well, here's one of those rare cases where Paul says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Now, there's two ways that people might get big-headed and think more highly of themselves than they should. Some people have more public gifts. They're teachers. They're leaders. And they could be prideful so that many people start looking at them and they say, oh, I'm, I'm a big shot here. Pay me my salary. Or it could be a prophet who thinks he got so much wisdom from God, some revelations from God, he can just get up and dominate everything. Get the big head. No, Paul says don't do that. But there's another, this is a more subtle way that people can think of themselves more highly than they should think. What about people that are don't have the more public gifts? Say they have a gift of mercy or helps. Something like that. Steve Ackerson points out some of these type of people might resent the leadership gifts which are pushing for change. Because leaders do. You know, they have to lead. They lead and they, and they see things that are wrong and they want to move the church to a higher level. And so they start trying to go to that higher level and the rest of the stick in the muds in the church don't want to move because they're comfortable where they are. And so they might think, hey, I know it's always been this way for the last three generations, and by golly, this leader's telling to tell us to go somewhere else, and we're just not going to do that. Well, that's thinking more highly of yourself than you should, too. Here's a quote from John Gill along that idea. Immature people often resent the admonishment of church leaders, seeing it as unsolicited advice. It was Paul's God-given job to serve the church by admonishment. God's grace to him was his authority for writing so frankly. So, yeah, we need to follow our leaders when they're leading us a good way. Now, but if they're cult types, sheep beaters, well, then you take, I'm out of here. But no, if they're godly men leading you into spirituality, then follow them. I'm going to tell you, it's not easy to be spiritual. It, it is so hard. There's so much against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, our own immaturity, that if you find somebody that knows something about the Lord, listen to him. Learn from him. All right, so Paul says in verse 3, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Think instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Well, since God distributed different gifts to each one, he's going to talk about that in the next few verses, it's God that did the distribution. So what are you bragging about? God gave you the gift. God distributed it. So the reason 
the, so therefore the user of the gift should have no reason for pride, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now this measure of faith, that used to bother me no end, but I think I've come to peace about what it means. It's referring to the spiritual gift of verses 4 through 8, as the NIV Study Bible says. I don't think it refers to the amount of faith one has, and measure kind of sounds like a mountain, so that's what I think threw me off. It's talking about the kind of faith one has. You have the faith of a prophet, the faith of a teacher, the faith of a giver, the faith of a leader, etc. It's disting- uh, The measure distinguishes one gift from another gift. All right, we'll test that assumption out as we go through here, starting in verses 4 through 5 of Romans 12. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, this is the famous body metaphor that Paul also uses in 1 Corinthians 12. This where he says this, For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. So this is a familiar idea with Paul. He's trying to emphasize unity and diversity. You have one unity and you have, you have one body with diverse functions. One body with diverse gifts. Those gifts represent different functions of the body. That's how the metaphor works. And I would like to say the metaphor also works pretty good with marriage. You've got one marriage, there's your unity. You've got diversity. A function, the husband leads, the wife helps. And I don't give a flying damnable frip about what the feminists in our culture today say. About, oh, we have an egalitarian marriage. The wife will help make the decision and the husband makes the decision. Because what you're going to end up with is a bunch of husbands scared to move. They're so passive. Well, honey, what do you think? Well, you tell me what to do, honey. Not to mention the fact, instead of that's really the main problem, much more than the domineering type husband who goes to the other extreme. One marriage, diversity of function. One body, one church, one church body, diversity of functions, diversity of gifts in that body. Now, notice, he says, in the same way we who are many are one, there's your diversity and unity, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ. That's the only way you're going to get that to work. only way you're going to get unity to work, whether it's marriage or the church, is in Christ. Because I tell you, people, they fly apart like magnetize iron filings. People do not get along with one another. I don't care how. I don't care if they love the same college football team. They'll find something to disagree on. We go to Romans 12:6. According to the grace given to us, Paul continues, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. Now, when Paul says we have different gifts, and he mentions prophecy in verse 6 and teaching in verse 7, guess what that means? Prophecy is distinct from teaching. And you say, well, that's obvious. What's the big deal? Well, it's not obvious to a lot of people. It's amazing how many theological writers conflate prophecy and teaching. The Chinese Union Bible, the Hohaben, it even does it. i tell you this story. I was teaching some, one time in Beijing, and the translator, whenever I would mention prophecy, and I think it was Romans 12 where I was teaching, I think it was right here, but it was somewhere, and I'd mention prophecy, and they translated teaching. And I'd hear her say, and I knew enough, enough Chinese where I could pick up, you know, what they were saying. I said, now, wait a minute. No, I said, this is prophecy, not teaching. And then they say teaching again. And so I'm getting a little perturbed. And so I said, well, let me see you. I was using the English Bible. I said, well, let me see your Chinese Bible. I looked at it, and sure enough, the Chinese Bible had teaching instead of prophecy there. Well, who translated that Bible? American missionaries in the early 1900s. Excuse me. Yeah, that's right, the early 1900s. And they were reflecting the theological consensus of the last several hundred years. And I'm into that because I use, to do this this series of audios I'm doing, uh, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett Brown, all of whom are 19th century Protestants, evangelical Protestants. And I cannot tell you how many times going through these commentaries, and I've gone through the commentaries from the first verse in Matthew to the last verse in Revelation. I've used those three commentaries. And I cannot tell you how many times they say that prophecy is teaching. I'm going to give you a quote to that effect in just a minute. But what was even worse than that, at a house church conference I was putting on one year with a couple of friends of mine, we had a Ph.D. in theology. Ph.D. piled high and deep in theology. And he tells me the same thing. And I'll just let's call him John Doe. I said, John, I said, how can you say prophecy is distinct from, is the same thing as teaching? If it was, why does Paul split the two out and, and list them in the list of spiritual gifts as different gifts? If they were the same gifts, he wouldn't do that. It would be redundant. 
And this Ph.D. in philosophy had no answer for that. I doubt if he'd even thought about it. So let me give you a quotation from Adam Clark, one of those 19th century commentators I talked about. Quote, that prophecy in the New Testament often means the gift of exhorting, preaching, or of expounding the scriptures is evident from many places in the Gospels. Now, of course, prophecy is involved in exhorting, no question. We'll talk about that in a minute. But preaching? No, prophecy is not preaching. That's evangelists do preaching, not prophets. Expounding the scriptures? No, teachers do that, not prophets. But Adam Clark, who's a very smart guy, he, he runs it all together. He says this is evident from many places in the scriptures, and he gives some quotes. Well, all I can say to Mr. Clark is if they're the same gift, why in the world are they listed as separate gifts by Paul? Verse 6, Romans 12, prophecy. Verse 7, Romans 12, teaching. They're different. Some have even called prophesying, preaching, or evangelizing. As I just mentioned, Adam Clark did that. Here's John Gill doing the same thing. Preaching the gospel is here designed. Really? Prophecy is preaching the gospel, which is the sense of the word in many places of Scripture, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, pre prophesying is preaching? Come on. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Prophecy is a spontaneous revelation from God about something. And, of course, it must conform with the Scripture, of course, or it's false prophecy. But true prophecy conforms with the Scripture, and it's something that you don't get by studying and looking up lexicons and comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's teaching. Prophecy is when you have a direct revelation. Oh, but, you know, you might write another, you, you know, this is say, I can hear the cessation is moaning and groaning now. Oh, but somebody might write another Scripture if you do that. Nonsense. They didn't do it back in Paul's day because they, they judged the prophecy. Nobody ever worried about the local yokel Christians in Corinth writing another book of Scripture. Prophecy was what it was. It was prophecy. It wasn't teaching. All right, now, Paul says in verse 6, we have different gifts. Now, that word gifts is charismata, which we normally think of as charismatic type gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, miracles, healings. But it's interesting. He uses the word charismata, spiritual gift, to apply to what we would consider non-charismatic gifts. Serving in verse 7, teaching in verse 7, encouraging in verse 8, giving in verse 8, leadership in verse 8, and showing mercy in verse 8, which proves to me that the charismatic gifts are not all miraculous. Some of them are just what we would call natural gifts. And by the way, these, these gifts that I just mentioned are not exhaustive. There are other gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, and I don't think we really ought to get to been out of shape about pigeonholing the gifts. I think Paul just kind of rolls out some examples. There's all kind of gifts that God gives people. Jesus had them all. He had all the gifts. The more we're like Jesus, the more we will learn to practice the gifts that are in our strong point. Now, this is a key point that's made by Steve Atkinson. I really believe this because, for example, you get thrown into areas that you're not comfortable with. I remember one time there was a I was working at a home for neglected and abused girls, and we took them to a so-called, quote-unquote, Christian rock concert. It was the biggest mistake of our lives, a bunch of crap music. You know, yeah, it really gets you close to the throne of God, listening to that musical excrement. And it stirred up a demon in one of the guys that was there that was visiting one of the girls. And so this guy's eyes are rolling back in his head. He's lost consciousness, and he's and he's staggering around and acting. He was, he was a demoniac, and I knew what he was. I knew what, what I was looking at. But I wasn't exactly sure how to proceed. So I had a friend of mine with me and, and said, come and look at this guy. He just he didn't even talk to me. He didn't talk about what we should do next. Should we try to cast this demon out here? Should we take him? I was thinking, should we take him back to the home and work with, with him there in private? But this guy, he just didn't even wait around. He just grabbed him and says, I can come out of you in the name of Jesus. Boom, that guy came back to consciousness. His eyes rolled back, and that was the end of that. Well, see, that's, you know, casting out demons, that ain't discernment of spirits. That's, it wasn't my gift. But I was forced. I was in a situation where I had to use it. I've been in another situation like that where I haven't used it, and I've, it's hardly ever happened since. Every now and then, you're going to get like that. Healing is not my thing, but every now and then, I was called on to pray for healing. And, and what are you going to do? Say, well, you know, that's not my gift. I'm not going to do it. No, you got to do it. Evangelism is another one. Gosh, I, always, I was scared to death to evangelize. It was terrible. I just finally started doing it when I was in China. And the more you practice the gifts you're not used to, the better you get at them. You know, practice makes perfect. These gifts are operated in... in how can I say, in synergetic, synergistic conjunction with God's Holy Spirit. He, he works and you work. It's not salvation now. It's the using of your gifts to minister to people. And again, the purpose of the gifts is not for you. It's for other people. And this first gift, prophecy, which I've just been talking about, is different from teaching. Well, if it's different from teaching, exactly what is it? 
Well, its purpose is edification, exhortation, and comfort. How do we know that? Because of 1 Corinthians 14.3. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification. That means building up, encouragement, and consolation or comfort. So let's look. That's uh, the first use of prophecy, edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, the second use of prophecy is revealing the secrets of the heart. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25. But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all and is judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. The secrets of his heart will be revealed. So that's the second purpose of prophecy, to reveal the secrets of people's hearts. Here's another example of revealing the secrets of one's heart. John 4:17 through 19. I don't have a husband, she, the Samaritan woman, answered. Jesus says, replies, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you know, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. So Jesus exercised prophecy there and, and, and revealed the secret of the Samaritan woman's heart. So that's the second use of prophecy, revealing the secrets of the heart. The third use of prophecy is for, for telling the future. And I deliberately listed this last. Here's an example, Acts 11:27 through 28. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. I forgot when that famine was. I think it was AD 50. It was somewhere around there. Claudius left office in 54, and he, I think he took office in 46. I forgot the dates exactly. But somewhere in the middle of that, there was a big famine. And before it happened, Agabus goes from Jerusalem, goes to Antioch, and predicts the future. This same Agabus also, years later, when Paul came back from the third journey, was in Caesarea, I believe it was. And Agabus came down from Jerusalem to Caesarea and said, you go down here to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up, put you in prison, which is exactly what happened. So that's predicting the future. So to repeat, three uses of prophecy. Use number one, edification, exhortation, and comfort. Use number two, revealing the secrets of the heart. Use number three, foretelling the future. Now, Having listened to that, does that sound like teaching to you? Does teaching reveal the secrets of the heart? Does teaching foretell the future? Now, teaching can be used for edification, exhortation, and comfort. I'll grant you that one, but not the other two. Now, what's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophets? Well, it's very simple. The erroneous Old Testament prophets were stoned. I don't have the Old Testament verse, but there's a verse, I think it's in Deuteronomy, it says, you know, prophets false, boom, get rid of him, stone him. But erroneous New Testament prophets are judged. Old Testament prophets that are wrong are stoned. New Testament prophets that are wrong are merely judged. They're not stoned. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate or judge. Now, one last word I want to talk about here in verse 6. Paul says, if prophecy, in other words, if we have a gift of prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. Use it. Now, that use is not a suggestion. That's a command. There's no false modesty or bashfulness about using one's gifts, not according to the Apostle Paul. He says, use it. Steve Atkinson says, to sit, soak, and sour is not an option. Sit, soak, and sour. Now, how many Christians you know go to church, they sit there to pew potatoes? Sitting there, sitting, soaking, and souring. Oh, I'm unhappy. I don't like this. I don't like the way the preaching was done. I don't like the car, color of the carpet. I don't like the music. No, we're supposed to be actively contributing to the life of your body and whatever whatever gift that God's given you, and he has given you a gift. This idea of using it, Scripture tells us this in other places. 1 Peter 4.10, based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others. And again, what's the point? It's not to serve yourself, but to serve others. Use it. Based on the gift, Peter says, 1 Peter 4.10, based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. 1 Corinthians 14.12, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Seek to excel, which means use those gifts and excel in using those gifts. Now, we're supposed to use those gifts in according to the standard of one's faith. Now, this is an interesting word here, standard of one's faith. What does that mean? It's probably the same thing as the measure of faith that was mentioned in verse 3. We're supposed to exercise gifts according to the measure of faith, according to the standard of faith here in verse 4, the verse, excuse me, verse 6. This is according to the NIV study Bible, and I agree with that. I think that's right. So it's probably the kind of faith. 
you seek to use your, use your faith according to the standard of faith, according to the kind of gift that you have. That's what, he's, that's what Paul is saying, I think. Adam Clark agrees with that. He quotes a guy named Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor observes that the measure of faith here in Romans 12.3 and the proportion of faith in Romans 12.6 seem not to relate to the degree of any gift considered in itself. In other words, how strong a gift of healing you have or how strong the gift of prophecy. How much revelatory gifts do you have? How many, how, how sick does, a, how severe sickness, how much of a severe sickness can you heal? It has nothing to do with the degree of the gift, but rather what kind of gift it is. So let me read this again Doctor from Adam Clark. Dr. Taylor observes that the measure of faith seems not to relate to the degree of any faith of any gift considered in itself, but rather in the relation and proportion which it bore to the gifts of others. For it is plain that he is here exhorting every man to keep soberly within his own sphere. In other words, if you ain't a teacher, don't teach. If you ain't a prophet, don't prophesy. If you can't pray for somebody with cancer, well, then don't pray for them. Get somebody else to do it. Uh, w- with the caveat that sometimes you're placed in positions where there there is nobody else to do it, and you have to do it, and you've got to expand your your use of the gifts. The NIV translates that in proportion to his faith, and that, of course, gives the other idea. The idea is you exercise your gift to the degree that you have faith to exercise it, and that's true, too. I mean, if if that's what Paul meant, it's absolutely true. You don't want to teach more than you are able to teach. If you don't understand something, you just have to say, I don't understand this. I can't teach you because I don't understand it. There's plenty of stuff in the Bible to not understand. So if you don't understand it, just don't teach it. So you're going to have to get somebody else to teach you. I can't do it. But don't get cocky and say, I've got all the answers. Kind of like Joseph Smith. I, all the other denominations are wrong, but I've got all the answers in Mormonism. As Adam Clark says, Paul may have been exhorting to not get puffed up and try to do a gift one was not equipped for. And I think that's what he's doing. So again, let me repeat. It could be according to the standard of faith, the proportion of faith that could be how, how much gift you have, how much faith you have to do a particular gift, or it could be stay within your particular gift as opposed to somebody else's gift. In other words, according to the standard of one's faith could mean according to the amount of one's faith that you got to exercise your gift, or according to the kind of one's faith you have to exercise. The two ideas are a little bit distinct, but the, but the same idea is present is don't get too big for your britches and try to exercise a gift that you don't have. And if you're not a leader, don't try to lead the church. Etc. Now let's look at the last word in Romans 12, 6. If prophecy, Paul says, use it according to the standard of one's faith. Now, whenever you see faith, you always have to decide, is this, is this objective faith or subjective faith? Objective faith means the, the, the system of doctrines, which is Christianity, the Christian faith. Subjective faith is our internal belief in our heart. So let's take the first option, objective faith. If prophecy uses it according to the standard of the Christian faith, the standard of one's faith, use it according to the standard of one's Christian faith. In other words, don't violate the parameters of what the apostles are saying. So in that sense, the objective sense of faith, faith is the body of doctrine once and for all delivered to the saints, as Steve Ackerson puts it. So then if we take that view, then Paul is saying here that Prophecy must be within the bounds of orthodox faith, all of which is exactly true, but I'm not sure that's what Paul meant. Favoring this view, according to Steve Ackerson, is Paul uses the word our instead of his to indicate faith. He says, according to our faith, which would be our Christian faith. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible doesn't have our faith. It has, according to the standard of one's faith. Well, I decided to follow that up a little bit. When I noticed the two different translations, Steve Atkinson used his faith, and he was, I forgot what version he used to get that, and my version had one's faith, so I started looking that up to see what the translations say, and it's interesting. They split all over the place. The Revised Standard Version says, according to our faith, and of course that would back up the objective interpretation of faith, according to our Christian faith. I don't know. Maybe that's the version that Steve Atkinson was using. I don't know. But there are also versions that use his faith according to let him prophesy according to the standard of his faith, which make it subjective, not objective, not not the objective system of doctrinal beliefs that is the Christian faith, but rather the subjective faith inside the prophet's heart. The NASB says his faith. The Lexham English Bible says his faith, but the Lexham Bible puts the his in italics. And there are some translations say, according to the 
according to the standard of your faith. That's the NIV. And some translations don't use any pronoun at all. They just say according to the standard of faith or to the proportion of faith. KGV does that. J.P. Green's literal version does that. And Young's literal version does that, which means the pronouns. I didn't look at the Greek. The pronouns probably not in there. That's not a good argument. That's too weak to say that Paul is referring to uh, prophesying according to the standards of the Christian faith. I think, rather, that he's talking about prophesy according to the faith of the individual gift holder. Oh, let me back up a minute. Uh, the, the NIV margin also has a translation which would tend to enforce the idea that Paul is talking about prophesying according to the objective system of Christian doctrine because the NIV margin says, let him prophesy in accordance, in agreement with the faith, in agreement with the faith. Well, that's obviously objective sense of faith there. However, in my opinion, the subjective sense fits much better with the context. Paul is not exhorting concerning orthodoxy here, prophesy according to the Christian faith. He's exhorting readers to use the various kinds of spiritual gifts. I have a commentator to back me up on that. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, quote, Many Romish expositors and some Protestant as Calvin and Bingle, and though hesitatingly Beza and Hodge, render this the analogy of faith, understanding by it the general tenor or rule of faith, divinely delivered to men for their guidance. But this is against the context whose object is to show that, as all the gifts of believers are according to their respective capacity for them, they are not to be puffed up on account of them, but to use them purely for their proper ends. That's Jameson Fawcett Brown. I think he's right. This is not talking about according to the analogy of faith. which The analogy of faith is a technical theological term for because what's believed everywhere in all places, everybody believes it, the standard of faith, if you will. All right, so let's go down to Romans 12:7. Paul continues, if service, in service, if teaching, in teaching. In other words, use your gifts, and if it's prophecy, use it. And if, in verse 7, if it's service, serve. If it's teaching, teach. Service comes from diakonia, which is the Greek word that is the basis for the English word deacon. The word is commonly used outside the Bible with reference to service necessary to prepare meals. So it's kind of the everyday nitty-gritty service that you need to do, what we might consider menial type of labor that, that every church has needs to be done. We see the word here in Luke ten forty. Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? There's the word in Acts chapter 6. There were seven men appointed to take care of feeding the widow. So you see it has service in connection with feeding people. It's kind of the idea. And if service, and Paul says, if it's service that your gifts serve in service. If it's teaching, use your gift in teaching. Now, here's a problem for teachers. Many people don't want to be subjected to teaching. Now, this is Steve Ackerson's observations, and he's a teacher, and I know what he, I know how he feels. I feel his pain. Some people prefer emotional worship through song. They prefer focus on prayer meetings, and they f prefer fellowship over a meal. And folks, there ain't nothing wrong with those three things. I do them all the time. In fact, I've been so over-focused on teaching, sometimes I need that kind of stuff Nothing wrong with it, but if that's all you want and you don't want teaching, well, then you are violating the importance of teaching as revealed in the Scriptures. For example, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go into all the nations, in verse 20, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded them. Teaching is an important thing. Acts 2, 41 through 42, this is at Pentecost. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoted themselves, folks. They didn't just endure it, put up with it. They devoted themselves to it. They were hungry to know what the truth was. First Corinthians fourteen twenty six. What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching. When you come together, yeah, you sing, but you have a teaching too, as well as revelation, tongue, interpretation, and all those things. Now, here's an example, in my opinion, of two groups who need to hear this what Paul says here in Romans 12, 7 about teaching, use it in teaching, 12, 6, and 7. Use that spiritual gift, serve in teaching. Charismatics need to hear that because they love not to talk about teaching, or at least, well, they do have teaching, but it's all about one thing. So house church Christians, oh, yeah, this is so fun, get together, have a meal, talk, fellowship with one another, and it's wonderful. I, I am a house church Christian. I believe in all that. The New Testament church was house church Christianity. But it's real easy to forget about teaching in that context because you get so free and easy with one another. Now, here's another interesting qu 
question that comes up about teachers. Does a teacher have to be an elder? The scripture nowhere says that. Here's an example of a teacher who's not an elder, Apollos. In Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, this is in Ephesus, 24, verse, Acts 18, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately. And it goes on to say he didn't know everything and he had to be instructed further by Aquila and Priscilla. But nonetheless, it shows that he was a teacher, even though it never says he was an elder anywhere. All right, so teachers don't have to be elders, but do elders have to be teachers? Actually, they do. First Timothy 3, 2, an overseer, that's an elder, therefore must be dot, 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 an able teacher. I left out some of the words in the verse for emphasis. Let me read the whole verse. An overseer, this is First Timothy 3, 2, an overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one's wife. He must be self-controlled. He must be sensible. He must be respectable. He must be hospitable. And he must be an able teacher. We go to verse 8, Romans 12, and we'll finish up this long audio. If exhorting, let me, I guess I better get the first part of the sentence so it makes sense here. Let's go back to verse, verse 6 of Romans 12. If prophecy, use it. Verse 6. Verse 7, if, verse 6, if prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. Verse 7, if service, use it in service. If I'll supply the missing words there that are implied. If teaching, use it, use that gift of teaching in teaching. And verse 8, if exhorting, use that gift of exhorting in exhortation. If giving, use that gift of giving with generosity. If leading, use that gift of leading with diligence. If showing mercy, use that gift of showing mercy with cheerfulness. All right, what is exhorting? The first gift that Paul mentions here, it means encourage. As NIV, it translates it. One does not have to be a prophet or a teacher to encourage, by the way. Anybody can do that. Prophets and teachers do encourage, but non-prophets and non-teachers can also encourage. If it's in giving with generosity, let me give you a quote from James L. Kraft, the guy who started Kraft Cheese. Quote, the only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. Lots of rich Christian businessmen will tell you that. However, a person does not have to be rich to give. Mark 12, verse 41 through 44. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd, this is Jesus, watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came in and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. So she poor people could give too. Let's look at some other scriptures about giving. Acts 20, verse 35, In every way I've shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Luke 6:38 Give and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you 2 Corinthians 9:7 Each person should do as he's decided in his heart not reluctantly or out of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver All right how about leaders are supposed to lead with diligence this verse says verse 8 the ESV has with zeal Bauer Art Gendricks and Docker the famous BAGD Greek lexicon translates the Greek word as eagerness, earnestness, diligence, attentiveness. That's how you're supposed to lead. You're not supposed to be a slouch. Why might a leader lose his zeal? This is Steve Atkinson's observation. Followers who suspiciously accuse him of being a would-be pope. Yeah, that'll do it. Having to deal with emotionally debilitating conflicts among those who he is leading. Yeah, that'll, that'll take away a leader's zeal. But there can be an opposite error. The leader is zealously leading, and then the people, all of a sudden, instead of instead of encouraging his zeal, they say, no, I want to be in charge. That's not really an opposite error. That's just another error. So those kind of things might cause a leader to not want to be a leader. is is really not easy. I mean, I've, I've done it for years in little churches. I've done it, and I said, golly, Moses, there's got to be something easier than this. There's got to be a different way. Well, it's not. It's just it, it's a lot of trouble. I'm not leading anything right now, and by golly, life has gotten easier. So... If you want to show mercy, you show mercy with cheerfulness. God loves a cheerful giver, as we just said. Quoted, quoting from 
2 Corinthians 9, 7, and Paul right here in Romans 12, 8 says that we're supposed to do mercy with cheerfulness. NIV Study Bible says the mercy is caring for the sick, the poor, and the aged. Supposed to do it with cheerfulness. Now, of course, it could be that Paul is telling them to do all spiritual gifts with cheerfulness, or he could be telling them to do the last one he mentioned with cheerfulness, which is given mercy. The NIV Study Bible takes the latter approach, says that Paul is emphasizing to do works of mercy with cheerfulness, and these are the type of works which especially would cause one to grumble because it's hard to deal with people that don't have. Steve Atkinson makes the comment, if one exercises mercy with a dour face, the hurting person will be greatly discouraged, and that's the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, we finish with Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. And now in the next section, 12, 9, Romans 12, verse 9 to the end of the chapter, we're going to talk about the marks of a Christian, amongst other things, as well as, well, that's what we're going to talk about, the marks of the Christian. See you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>